Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying, raising, and investing capital for MedTech companies. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Valentium. Valentium is a contract design and manufacturing firm specializing in the end-to-end development, production, and post-market support of diagnostic and therapeutic active medical devices, especially active implantables and other class three medical devices. Valentium's core competencies include electrical engineering and design, mechanical engineering and design, embedded software, software as a medical device, mobile apps, CGMP contract manufacturing, embedded cybersecurity and OT cybersecurity, systems engineering, human factors and usability, and automated test systems. With customers all over the world, Valentium works with clients in every stage and situation, ranging from startups seeking funding to established Fortune 100 companies. Visit Valentium.com to explore your next steps in medical device development. We have two events coming up. We have our Midwest Showcase August 30th in Cleveland, Ohio, and you will have two more days to purchase tickets. Tickets must, must be purchased by August 16th. We also have our Startup Symposium in Houston, Texas, where we have a limited amount of seating, and the event is almost sold out. That'll be October 25th and 26th. More information on both of these events are on our website. And if you use the code PM20, you'll get 20% off your ticket. In this episode, our guest, Salvatore Buccemi at HRN and I discuss his new book called Investing Legacy, how the 0.001% invests. We talk about family offices and how they evaluate opportunities and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Salvatore Buccemi. Sal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and a privilege, Dwayne. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, so, Sal, introduction, who you are, background, what you currently do, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, my name is Sal Buscemi. I'm originally from New York. I went to school in New York City. went to Fordham. thought I wanted to become a doctor. I didn't. Um, I wrote about this in my latest book, actually. But um, during that time, a friend of mine, and I was pre-med in college, uh, sent me a book that his father gave him to give to me, and it was Confessions of a Medical Heretic. And at that point, I read that book between my junior and senior year, and it became almost prohibitive for me to really, you know, go through with the motions of my senior year. I also rode competitively and, and everything with that. And um, I wound up, because of the networking and the work I did during an internship, landing a job just because of the pure networking uh, at Goldman Sachs in their investment banking division. And it was there that, you know, you, you know, I really learned a lot about the culture in the book, um, Investing Legacy, that, um, you know, I sent to you to look at. And um, there it talks about the story of that and how really a lot of the families today invest. And 
we've been doing that through, I've been running my own balance sheet for the past 20 years. I started Danju Partners as a distressed fund. Um, I raised $30 million from a Park Avenue institutional money manager. And at the time, this is during the great the great real estate blow up and the great recession of 2008. And, um, you know, we were the kitchen sink for Bear Stearns because I had the, fort right, the forthrightness and the, I guess, the insight to really look into, you know, seeing what was going to happen. And um, after that, because we were more value focused real estate investors, a lot of the investors I had who were LPs were life science families. And they said, well, you know, you did a great job doing this in real estate. Why don't you turn your guns on us and bring your real estate families into some of these life science companies? And that's exactly what we did. And we formed HRN as a multifamily office three years ago with two of my other rock star partners um, who have very deep and rich experience in many things, including specializing in life sciences earlier stage oncological companies. And we were able to raise substantial amounts of money for these companies and really making a legacy and a mark on it. And I can tell you, Dwayne, there's something that people really don't like investing into, and that's life sciences, because it's nobody wants to be reminded of high school biology and chemistry. So, you know, there's, there's been a lot of work between that. But what we did find, though, and the gateway into it, and what we discovered was there was a, there was a hook. And the hook is, is that every wealthy family worth their salt has a, um, has a gateway to life sciences through philanthropy and their philanthropy is usually not very well managed it's mostly from the heart it's, it's mostly something from uh emotional that doesn't really you know serve the needs that it's supposed to intended to serve and when these families figured out that they can make the same direct investments into the companies you know with these very pedigreed um ceos who have all had multiple exits before we even invest in them they were delighted and it turned into something where uh, we started this family office and we've done a lot of things, not just in life sciences, but also um, in uh, technology and AI as well. Very cool. Um, okay, so uh, let's dive into a lot of this. Um, sure. But I'm going to start with, with, with the beginnings. Sure. Um, so grew up in New York, um, Mets or Yankees. Yankees by default, only because I rode and and I rode past Yankee Stadium, so I had some sort of an allegiance to them. Okay, I like that. Um, Harlem River. That's what HRN yeah. stands for, Harlem River Navy. So anyway, that's the yeah. family office. Yep. Oh, right, 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 right. And and now you're down in Miami, is that right? Yeah, I'm in Miami. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I want to ask about rowing real quick, actually. Um, okay. And, and more from like an entrepreneur perspective, right? So you obviously run this multi-family office, um, but you have an entrepreneurial spirit, right? You're in real estate, a bunch of different things. You, you wrote the book that I'm holding right here that people can't see because this is an audio podcast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but with the rowing, you know, something that's interesting that I've been doing a lot of uh, uh, research on is like the correlation between entrepreneurship and people who have either um hobbies or um you know play sports uh or really into like exercise but they're like hyper focused on one they're like on, on one area where they're committed to this like process right and um it's interesting because it makes a lot of sense to me i played a lot of sports but 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 even just like general activities like even if you're like really into gardening or or you name it hiking whatever it is um it shows that you have this like <clears throat> ability to um, take a process and be okay with how long it takes to achieve your goals, right? Because they're not 
instant overnight successes. Um, and I'm curious, like with something like rowing, right? Um, boy, that's, it's like, it's like running. It's like biking. I mean, it takes time to build up and get good at it and the form and the strength training behind it. I'm curious if like that background from your life helped with your entrepreneurial spirit and, and whatnot. I think so. I think whenever you go anything into sports, there's a level of confidence that you achieve, right? And I think that level of confidence can transcend across several things, especially if it's formalized, you know, in your earlier years. Now, I wasn't the best rower in the world. Um, you know, I was decent. Um, however, with that said, it was also, um, it trained you to work alongside other people in sort of a team sport. And when you're in a team sport, you have to trust someone. And you can know on a team whether or not if you can trust someone to do something or not. If you look at how like any professional sports teams are played, you know, you keep these teams together for years. And the reason why they're successful is because they have the relationship and the trust with each other. So I absolutely do think so. And I think it, it helps not only just with the confidence, but it also helps you to determine, yes, I have to have a trust in this person or I have to understand how to gauge his trust using some metric, whatever that means to me emotionally or, you know, in, you know involuntarily what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. So let's, let's talk about the book and, and a lot of what sure. we wanted to talk about today, because I think, you know, for, for us in the, in the med tech space and life sciences more broadly, the issue is not getting companies funded once they've reached, you know, clinical results or commercialization or some commercial traction. That's not that hard, right? I mean, if you have commercial traction, people are definitely willing to jump in and, and get on board. Um, sure. If you get clinical data, people are going to hop in and get on board. But where the issue is, is that pre-seed, seed, really early stage stuff um, where you have to figure out where or a lot of times that money that's being invested there is spent on de-risking the problem a little bit, right? I mean, each step of the way, it gets a little less risky. Um, and, you know, there's VC firms that'll go in and do pre-seed, seed. Um, there's angel groups that'll do that as well. Um, but family offices is really interesting, uh, especially the the ultra high net worth individuals. And, and also the fact that they also generally have the capabilities to invest throughout the entire process, right? Um, and so I'm curious, you know, your book is how does the 0.001% invest? Um, let's just start there. I mean, family offices, maybe even defining what that means um, would be it's, helpful. It's a, a family office is a, is a term that has been sort of commoditized today. And what it is is, um, any family with investable liquid assets over a hundred million dollars. So this is either comes two ways through inheritance or you sold a company and now you, you know, you're looking to do, you know, what's, what happens next in life. And what happens is, is that a lot of these people are not really looking for the next zero. I mean, let's face it, Jay-Z is not looking, you know, to buy the next, you know, Bitcoin iteration because he thinks he's going to make a lot of money on it. Um, they're looking for more. Uh, they're looking for other things like legitimacy and legacy. And so, for anyone who's listening to this, who's looking to formulate something, you have to understand families are not institutional. They're more story-driven. And if you could put together a good story where people can get around it, that's important. And the added benefit to it is, is that if you can give them somehow some prominence or elevation of status, 
that would work too. I'll give you a case study. So we're, we invested in a company that's founded, co-founded by a 2018 Nobel Prize laureate for uh, medicine and physiology, Dr. James Allison. And it was very easy to raise money for that company because of Dr. James Allison uh, being on there because people want to go around and tell their friends that they're invested into a company with a 2018 Nobel Prize laureate, whereas all your friends are out there investing in Bitcoin. But, you know, if you can make it even, even better um, and say, hey, the person who invests a million dollars gets to have lunch with, um, you know, this Nobel Prize winner. You know, now, you know, this is an investment, not a donation. People will trip over themselves to do that, to have the selfie, to bring the family down, because to them it's an issue of prominence and legitimacy. It's the same reason why people buy, uh, you know, skyscrapers they used to or, um, you know, professional sports teams. It's because they want to be known as the guy who their friends say behind their back knows the owner of the Rams. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'm curious too, you know, getting into life sciences. So you kind of talked about at the beginning, right? You said they don't want to talk about high school biology and that sort of thing. Does the fact that most of these products are also regulated, does that give some pause for concern as well? Or Regulated as far as having to go through the FDA? Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. but that's where the, you know, that's why in life sciences you have the outside returns because you're taking deeper risk, right? I mean, more or less. I mean, low interest rates have sort of changed that. But if you look at it, and my partner is very good at this kind of data, um, you know, he would show you that, you know, life sciences VCs always outperform, you know, their conventional, um, you know, tech or something else. And there's also something, too, which is a double-edged sword, which is a good thing. Because life sciences has a higher barrier to entry. You have to be smart. You have to be smart to invest into it. This isn't a coin where somebody's going to sneak into your DMs and say, hey, Dwayne, you want to invest in, you know, Dogecoin or whatever? No, it's, yeah. not, it's not, you know, it's the exclusivity is the most important part of the whole process. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, you know, curious as well. So you, you mentioned a lot of it's like legacy investing. Is there is there any aspect of it too that, you know, hey, they've had, uh, you know, a, a personal situation where a family member was affected by it? I mean, is that oh, yeah. a real strategy as well? I mean, that goes back to, you know, the strategy that we use, basically, that everybody, and I said this, you know, about 10 minutes ago, but what it was is that we identified that every wealthy family worth their salt had, you know, a philanthropy arm, and that philanthropy arm was poorly managed. It was usually by the near-to-well son putting it into a, you know, let's just call it whatever organization you want to call it that you see advertised during the Super Bowl at halftime. And then before you know it, 10% of its intended profits or actually, you know, or proceeds are supposed to be put somewhere, but you have no idea where, and it's not at your discretion. It's probably at some college laboratory um, investing or, you know, in investigating something or researching something that maybe doesn't go across your value system, right? So, I mean, yeah. that's, you know, and that's the, the power of the emotion, really, and that's how we were able to do it. But given the added safety of having best-in-class CEOs, founders who have had multiple exits, and you know, following along other world-class family offices too. Yeah. Who are, you know, who are smart in this space. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, I guess also too, uh, the other question usually is like with these family offices is what is their appetite for taking on some of these, you know, first money in investments of like, uh, hey, I have this idea, mm -hmm. I have a prototype, but I need money to take it to the next level. Yeah, so for people who are listening, the, the families right now, they are, they, they, not all of them are the same. There's two different types. There's the emerging families who are the nouveau riche, 
Okay, that you know that's what Rolls Royce sells to and Ferrari, right? You make your first hundred million, you know, what do you do? You buy you know a bunch of useless stuff you don't need, and trying to find legitimacy that way, and then you don't, and then you know you're on the phone with me trying to do something else. So that's usually how it happens. Right? Okay. Like, I want my name on the side of a library. All right. Yeah. Well, let's figure that out. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's there's a difference between them and then the established ones. So the established ones would be like the Rockefeller family, and they're not going to go. They some of them do have those you know those relationships, and they will go mm-hmm. into it. And there's and as as of recently, a lot of, of VC funds have gone into like the seed route and everything. But they're more mm-hmm. like what we call incubators or you know studios where they you know sort of do yeah sure you know a lot more handholding you know God's work I call it with these founders, but. You know they're able to find a lot of you know a lot of what we call alpha in the business. So that's you know a lot a lot of investors like that. But if you're just starting out, you got to have a story. And I would go after the doctors and dentists first because they're the ones who are going to be you know the most passionate about it. They're the ones who you know are looking for a good time. You know mm-hmm. they're looking for a little bit of spice in their life. You know find a radiologist yep. that's bored or a couple of them. You know take them out to like Fogo de Chao, give them a yeah. good story, give them a good technical deck, and then you know just just be ready to move. And that's your first money in there, right? And that's the money that, you know, trusts you and, and then, you know, that's compelling for you to do that. It's really going to be something, um, you know, once you get past and you're able to prove it. And that's how all these companies do it, to be honest with you. And then you move on to the families and you say, okay, they'll come in and they'll come in maybe in a later round, but they're going to be adding a lot more than just money. And what they add is usually the reputational capital um, and the human capital. And, and, and that's really the most important things, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let me, let me, um, ask that question is you kind of just mentioned it, you touched on it, but, but why would someone want to go to a family office, right? We talk about this all the time on our other series, smart money, neutral money, bad money. Um, what would classify a family office as, as neutral or smart? Uh, I would say neutral is smart. It's only insofar in the fact that they're playing in their lane. So if it's for us, uh, um, let's just say it's a uh, say it's a, a life science company and the founder made a lot of money in life sciences, he's not going to be really, believe it or not, interested in, in um, you know real estate as much, right? He will because he has to, but he's not going to be in anything interested where he, he's just going to know and stick to his knitting, so to speak, and stay in his lane. That's what we, and if you can find someone who has that commonality that they know it and they can actually come in and actually help, that's where it really happens. Because to them, they're going to be thinking about it personally. They're going to be thinking, you know, I'm going to take Dwayne on. This sounds great. You know, I used to be, you know, I'm speaking on behalf of one of my CEOs, uh, you know, the former vice chairman of Cardinal Health. And, you know, I happen to know what they want and what Dwayne is producing or his ideas or what they want. So, you know, we're going to build something and sell it back to Cardinal, right? And then that's, you know, that's that's usually how it goes. And if you're strategic about it, rather than just trying to go out there with a shotgun approach, trying to, you know, spray and pray and see what happens, you're going to be a lot more meaningful with it. That's going to require a little bit of time for you to do some research and, you know, maybe go to some conferences and, and do that. I mean, for, you know, for people who are motivated, you can get pitch book, but that's, I think we pay like, geez, I think we pay like $20,000 a year for that, at least, maybe 30, so... You know, that's if you have someone with access to that and you can drill into sort of your vertical, mm-hmm. that that is meaningful. Okay. Um, all right. That's helpful. And so do we want to go through the book or do we go straight into what you're doing with HRM? Uh, let's talk about the book. Um, okay. So, so this is available on 
uh, Amazon, I take it, or, or yeah. any, okay. And yep. narrated by author on Audible, too. Just so okay. You know. okay. Okay. And, but they can get an autographed copy by going to investinglegacy.com forward slash book. And if they go to investinglegacy.com forward slash book, then they get an autographed copy from yours truly. Awesome. Great. Okay. Just like so, you did, right? Yeah. Just, I, I have the copy <laughs> right the here. Little, the little, yeah. th- what do you call it? The uh, little bookmark. bookmark. In there, right? Little bookmark yeah. in there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So, so um, I'm curious, you know, if someone's listening in and, and yeah. they're going to start their entrepreneur journey, they're going to, you know, eventually raise money. There's a bunch of books for how to raise money from VCs and, yeah. and that kind of thing. Why pick up this book and read it? Uh, it is going to tell you in the real world how things happen. And what, what I when I wrote the book, I wanted to make sure it was an owner's manual for people of wealth. But for people who have been raising money, they have found it very useful because it's a very breezy understanding of how things work. It's no formalization. It's sort of like, all right, how does it really work out? You know, you and I talking across the table. And in order to corroborate a lot of that, what I did was I um, – I brought in um, four, you know, four fellow CEOs. I brought in uh, ex-bosses at Goldman Sachs and um, someone who I sit on the board with of the Boston-based bioscience company called Genius Biotechnology, Mr. Stephen Rockefeller, to uh, corroborate a lot of these things. And so it makes it a little more easier for people to digest because I think that there's a rigidity when people are asking for money. It's sort of like a foreign wedding. You know, there's sort of like people get really, really tight. But if you just know that this is a relationship business and you treat each one of your investors like you're courting them for marriage, it becomes a lot easier, right? It really does, you know, whether you want to work with them or not, not just because they have a checkbook handy. You know, think about it. Your investors, you're marrying them. I mean, you you, you are. And I have a lot of, I have 20 families and, you know, I treat them all like girlfriends. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but I'm just saying it in a way like that's the attention to detail that you need to be with these people when you're building something and you're building a brand especially in things that are seen as being esoteric as, as life sciences. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. I mean, that's, we, we talk about this a lot with our startup companies, especially like on the VC route where it's like, if you're going into a VC pitch and, or you're going into due diligence with them, you better know what kind of fund they have. How much do they average? You know, who have they invested with in the past? Uh, what kind of, what kind of fund is it? Um, you know, what's their average check size? Do they follow on? You need to know all these things because the more you know about how they think and how they invest, the better the relationship will be for you as well. Yeah. That's why pitch book costs $30,000 a year. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. That's, that, that's, uh, that's helpful. Uh, so there'll be a link to the exact, uh, um, uh, URL that Sal has just mentioned in the show notes. So up or down initiative on the platform you're listening to, um, tell me about HRM. So you said you have 20, 20 families, you have, have three partners. Families. Yeah, we have three partners, 20 families. Um, we've done it very, it's, it's been working very, very well because we've developed a good culture. We both, you know, come from backgrounds that are kind of disparate. You know, I left Goldman at 29, I raised $30 million, you know, at the age of 29. Uh, My, you know, co-founder, he at the age of 26 was managing 5 billion in life sciences for the Rockefeller family, right? So, I mean, so, and my other partner, you know, we call him the patron saint of uh, standardized testing. He has four Ivy League degrees and an impeccable track record in life sciences and used to be the head of, uh, you know, at, at 26, life science investing for the Texas State Teacher, Teachers Venture Teachers Pension Fund Venture Farm. Wow, 
Wow. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> a pretty, pretty all-star so the deal team. sort of thing. It's yeah. just, it's almost like you look at everything, like, you know, the, you, you look at the world a little differently because how we qualify these CEOs for us to invest into is that they had to have multiple exits. There's no number, okay. but I'll just say that we've invested in the company recently with a very prominent investor, about $3 million in a company called Thrive Bioscience. Thrive Bioscience has a, um, a really pedigreed CEO by the name of Thomas Forrest Farb Horsch. This is going to be Thomas's 16th exit and his eighth unicorn. That is what a lot of people like to invest into because there's certainty of the jockey, not of the horse. And, you know, he is when you when you set up companies like this, you know how to do it for maximum value to get out fast. And you bring in, you know, everybody you need to as far as your competitors or your, you know, people who are inside with you to be able to put this together. And that is what, you know, people like to invest into is that certainty. And, you know, sometimes we're earlier stage on that, but. We'll go earlier stage because the guy has, you know, a track record as long as he's healthy. Um, and, and that's really what brings a certainty to a lot of families is that we're doing that. But we're also not what you call leading investments. We have, but we're not currently. We don't like to stay. We do. But um, but we, we have um, and, you know, it's worked out well. But we like to be alongside other prominent families um, who are just as smart or smarter than we are. You know, it helps to do diligence. You know, you gossip, you know, there's industry gossip and everything. I mean, that's, you know, you find out everything that goes on and that makes it much easier to and, and, and brings a lot more confidence. And again, it goes back to the relationships. If these guys didn't have the relationships and we didn't, you know, fulfill our promises on prior things, as I said, we wouldn't be in SpaceX today. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, very cool. Um, yeah, I guess I didn't really realize how close-knit some of the family offices were in terms of, you know, syndicating deals, which is silly because a lot of VCs firms will syndicate with each other, right? So why wouldn't family offices do that? Um, alleviate the risk, right? I mean, right. I write about in the book, but it's, you know, they're club deals, right? It's like passing a hat around. That's exactly what we're doing. You know, we have a nice seven-figure, you know, thing in SpaceX. We're passing the hat around to the guys we know who are motivated by it. It's mm -hmm. a statement asset. You know, I don't think it's going to give the same return as everything else, like Thrive Bioscience, for example, in our fund. Right. But, you know, it's people are going around and what are they doing? They're telling their friends this weekend that they invested in the SpaceX. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're, you're, a lot of the qualifications is betting on the jockey. Um, yeah. Yeah. What about problem? How important is that too? I mean, I know for the story, right? Um, but the problem's uh, important, and I think the problem needs to be something that you are solving. A very there's a lot of problems. And yeah. What, what right. I see, and I'll, I'll tell you what what the what what it really is is that, and this is a very good question. So I've had a lot of rubber chicken lunches at the Harvard Club over my lifetime. Okay. And through my career, there's been these guys who have been doctors who come in. And what they do is, I'm answering your question here with a story because I, I like that. I'm incredibly important. So, yeah. one of these rubber chicken lunches at the Harvard Club in New York, uh, this you know very confident, cocky doctor comes in with a team of two other doctors in their mid 40s. Okay. Okay. That's my age. Okay. I mean, I'm just you know I can I talk about it. But th what they were doing is is that they were looking to buy IP. Okay. So they wanted to raise money to buy IP. Yep. But what they were also looking to do was, and this is the most obnoxious thing I've ever heard, is that they were raising money to figure out what to do with that IP, right? Okay. So now we're like gonna pay you salaries to figure out what to do with IP that we bought. Like it's just, 
you know, it's not, it doesn't make sense. And they just thought that that is the, the IP itself was, you know, important enough, you know, for value. And there's no value in the IP unless you can really execute on it, right? That's really what it comes down to. But yep. these guys didn't know how to monetize or commercialize it. So, yeah, I mean, they have to know what the problem is. It has to be a, it has to be a problem that they're solving a solution for that people can get around their head and say, you know what, I totally understand this. I get it. I totally, um, you know, I have the same type of cancer in my family or the same type of, you know, um, therapies that didn't work for something and, and everybody's touched by it, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. the wealthy always put money aside for philanthropy. They always have. Um, but if you're able to cap capture them in that pocket, then it's a smart idea for you to do so. Yeah. Um, tell me about your, your, your personal switch from real estate to life sciences. I understood people came to you and said, hey, we love what you're doing. Come do it in life sciences. But yeah. for you as well, is there a greater sense of like fulfillment by getting into no, life sciences? I, I fell into it accidentally, but I'll tell you, you know, I'm the son of a chemistry professor and, you know, I, you know, I never thought I would be doing this, you know, in college again, like it's just, you know, it's a far stretch, but uh -huh. I accidentally fell into it um, because, you know, a lot of the investors that we had were real estate investors. They did not, you know, we had only bought things on value, meaning like at the bottom of the market, you know, we bought a deep value, you know, de-risking a lot of the investment and turning it around right now, you know, because I saw this and I was professionally raised to do this. But right now you're seeing a lot of real estate people blow up the same as they did before because they overpaid and leverage was cheap and they didn't, you know, they thought trees were going to grow to the sky. So I, we were bidding on a consortium of basically glorified CVSs in middle America and they were triple net lease and they were safe because not all money is the same. Some money in real estate wants, you know, like, you know, a little more return. So you do the value added to the rehab, but they, these guys want to stabilize and, you know, just collecting, you know, quarterly coupons. So I, if you know anything about real estate, everything's really valued off of the cap rate. And these portfolios have been trading at a 10 cap going back to Moses. And then suddenly a bunch of doctors and dentists were outbidding me on this. So, you know, at an 8.5 cap that they were bidding, they were actually, actually it went a little lower than that. It was eight and a quarter. Um, I would never be able to get my investors out of that alive. That means they were overpaying for the property. And if anything goes wrong, then they're going to have some issues. So. I wound up having to get, and I talk about it in the book, I gave back about $19 million. And the reason is, is because I was not going to be a good steward of that, you know, of that capital in real estate. I said, you know what, it's starting, the cycle's happening again. <laughs> Let's do some other things. And they're like, okay, Sal, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I'm aligned with this one CEO that's had 69 IPOs, you know, <laughs> I'm working with him. They're like, what? You know, like yeah. Brad Nazem, like, you know, that guy? I'm like, yeah. And um, it became very compelling. Um, for these people because they were working like them with in-kind, best-in-class CEOs and families. Um, but, you know, it was me that who was, you know, bringing it together sort of the bridge between these families and these other families. So a lot of these West Coast families were like, hey, we really like what you're doing in New York. You know, you know, you have a, you know, a very strong, um, you know, network out there. Let's, let's start playing along on this stuff if you can hold our hand through the process. And that's exactly what it was, is that we were holding our hand through the process. Now, a lot of times, you know, you get people who, you know, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of ego involved. And so it's like, hey, Sal, it's great. Yeah, I'll invest in your company. But can you take a look at my brother-in-law's company? Is that something you would invest into? I'm like, oh, no. Like, you know, <laughs> he's like, just do me a favor, look at it and just say no, you know, and why, yeah. you know, but, but know that I'm going to forward the email to him. So, you know, I'm like, all right, fine, <laughs> you know, but, you know, they, but, you know, when you're, 
and, and the other thing I'll tell you too is that when you're when you're dealing with families, it's like you build a relationship because you're spending so much time with them. And it, you know, when you're dealing with raising money from people, Duane, I'll just leave you with this: is um, people will never part with their money without giving you their time first. Okay, and you know, even if it's you know a squeeze page to buy my book, or you know, that's maybe doesn't really have the same commitment. But if somebody's investing a hundred, five hundred, or million in Thrive, for example. Um, that you, you're going to have to spend a lot of time with them before, you know, that happens. And that's sort of like the highest calling right there, if you think about it, being able to mm -hmm. persuade people to do things. And, you know, through, through some personal tragedies of losing my mom and my father and my brother, you know, it became like, what is it that I'm going to do? And so I channeled a lot of the talents, you know, and the circumstances and the real estate cycle allowed me to, to be able to focus on, you know, building a track record in the unenviable but very prosperous life sciences, you know, earlier stage investing business. And that's worked out pretty well. And the relationships you have to understand with these CEOs are very wealthy themselves too, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when it comes time to scratch my back and there's a great real estate deal, who are they going to think of, right? I mean, that's yeah. really, you know, what it comes down to because, you know, we bailed them out. I wouldn't say bailed them out, but we've helped them with everything. And, you know, they're, they're always like, well, you got to meet this guy in Palm Beach and this guy here in Adventure. You're going to meet this guy in Miami Beach. These are big names. And, you mm -hmm. know, I, I gladly, you know, that's like a tour of duty for me. You know, that's what you're right. building the relationships, putting them my email list, you know, so they see all the propaganda and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I love ending on that uh, because that advice is, is um, uh, crucial because I think people are sometimes confused um, by what raising capital means, right? They want it to be, hey, Sal, check out my product. Great, Dwayne, here's a million dollars. And that's just not how it works um, with you, anybody. I, that. I mean, I'll, I'll just end on a story. I since moved to Miami and because of, you know, the people I know in New York, I was invited to go to a lot of these Florida Venture uh, conferences. And every time somebody would come after me and would be like, hey, are you, you know, <laughs> you know, I had a badge on and they'd have an iPad under their arm and all of a sudden it's like, you know, they're looking for marriage on the first date and it's really awkward. Um, but you know, nobody listening to this is ever going to do that. I'm sure. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Sal. Um, I appreciate the insights today. I appreciate, um, you taking the time to, uh, talk to me and talk to the audience, uh, hang on for, and hang on for one minute. We'll chat offline too, yep, but, okay. um, information on the book, websites, LinkedIn, um, all of that will be in the show notes for people who are listening in. Love it. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, Sal, thanks again. And thanks for the book. Yeah, you got it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.